Welcome to the State Support Team 11 podcast. This episode is a roundtable discussion on race and education, a historical perspective. Our panel includes SST 11 consultants Gochi Okoy and Kimberly Brown, as well as their special guest, Dr. Kenyana Walker. Dr. Walker has a background as a licensed school psychologist. She is currently a lecturer on urban issues and education at The Ohio State University, a translational research specialist at the Center on Education and Training for Employment, and co-chair of the Center's Initiative on Racial Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Let's join the discussion. Okay, good morning. So welcome to our discussion on race and education. I'm Ugochi Okoye, and I'm here with my colleague, Kimberly Brown, and of course, our special guest, Dr. Kenyana Walker. Dr. Walker, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Kim, how are you today? I'm doing well today. Thank you. It's a great opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Walker. Indeed. And I love that she said that because it is really great to be here with both of you today. Kim and I were really honored. I mean, we were fortunate enough to have attended the presentation on race and education, a historical perspective that you recently did for the Central Ohio region. Mm-hmm. We wanted to revisit and kind of continue that discussion today to provide additional insight for our participants, as well as to give an overview for those who are unable to attend the learning opportunity. So in the presentation, let's dive in. You discuss the social consequences of disparities, discrimination, systemic barriers, and how these create gaps in education for students of color. Can you speak more about how these issues are affecting students? Yeah, but first I'd like to go back to that whole idea of the social um, consequences. So when we, when we really think about race and really start considering what it is, it, it truly is somewhat of a created thing. Um, and it was created for a reason. And the reason is, is to provide privilege to some, disadvantage for others and those types of things, which gets to the idea of really the social uh, consequences really being the tool uh, of the implementation of race and racism. And so when we think about our students' experiences across the span of their educational journeys, we have to really start asking the question about whether or not the the consequences of race um, are evident and are impacting their successful transition from grade to grade. Um, And so when we think about the student experience just across grade bands, you know, we can see literature and research that talks about discipline practices for even our littlest little ones, our little ones and tiny packages, our preschoolers, we can see the social consequences of race because what we have found um, in research is is that uh, black children are disproportionately disciplined sometimes for the perception that they may do something that uh, is against the rules. Not that they've actually done something, but that they look like they might. Um, And that goes into a whole nother thing about suspicion and implicit bias and those types of things. But this is what some of our earlier learners are experiencing. And it is setting the stage for them as to what is normal. And it normalizes racism. It normalizes implicit bias. And many times I do have to say that this is occurring unconsciously in the minds of our educators and those that interact. 
And then when we look at that preschool uh, experience, um, we know that there are three things that increases the likelihood of a, of a student experiencing disproportionate discipline. So expulsions in preschool, um, those types of things. And that is if the student is big, if they are black and if they are a boy. So the more that a student shares those identities, the likelihood that they will be disproportionately, which to me means um, receiving unwarranted at times discipline, because when we compare their behavior to that of a non-Black peer, it can be the same behavior, but it is, it is addressed differently. And so we see that occurring across the educational um, experience. We can see that there are certain student populations um, who are considered highly intelligent, gifted, and those types of things. Those students are being referred for um, academically enriching type situations, which means that there are students who are not being given those opportunities and exposure to that different type of what I would call academic capital. That occurs from elementary school all the way into our students leave off and go to college. And then at college, we can start talking about um, how uh, advisors operate differently based on race, the types of information that they either share or don't share, which also is another form of capital. And so what we find, particularly my research found that um, advisors operate differently with black female students, white advisors. So white students are given certain types of information that black female students are not. And so what happens is it requires them to engage in additional effort to really navigate those spaces on top of just being a student. And so when we think about the question that you asked, those experience compound across the educational experience. And I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what position is that putting our most minoritized students in as they are trying to both access their education and the information that they need to be successful in accessing their education. Hopefully that answered your question. <laughs> I mean, I think one thing I loved about that is that it really was a really good overview of some of what you talked about when you were trying to give the, the background around like, you know, this whole notion that even though race isn't real because of the consequences of it, that contract is now very real, their implications and so on. And so I, I do love that you highlighted that. and. And that also, I mean, you brought up so many things, but there was also this piece that resonated with me during your presentation because you talked about this notion of like, we teach what we're taught and that learning occurs when results can be repeated. And in what you just talked about a lot of, it, it's like this cycle, right? You say starting from the elementary age, all through college, like into different experiences, you even pushed it towards the workforce and like the gaps in pay that exist, even when, especially when I would say, um, marginalized populations of BIPOC folks have higher degrees. The gaps are yeah. even that much more wider. So I kind of say all that to come back to these unconscious competencies, again, that you said that's happening, where, you know, you've learned, you produce at will what you've learned. So students are learning by watching. It's a knee-jerk reaction. 
Yeah, you're here. They're hearing what we say. They're feeling um, they feel how they're being treated. And so what would be the significance, I guess, of what black and non-black students are learning about race, especially when they engage with adults in school, in their community, in their environments? What does that look like? So it's very significant. So if we if we go back to this whole idea of um, privilege, right? So we know that there are buckets of privilege that all of us carry. You know, I'm black. They, the people can't know that, but I'm black. My name probably tells you that I am. Um, but I also have some privilege in in different areas. I may not have privilege in my race, but I have privilege based on my educational attainment. I have privilege based on my SES. I have privilege based on the fact that I'm a native language speaker. I have privilege based on the fact that I am native to the United States and where we live. So those identities for me just as a black woman who falls in one of the most minoritized buckets still gives me a level of privilege that others may not have. But then when we think about race just broadly, there is a privilege in being in the majority. There is a privilege in being in the in-group, but the connection to the privilege also is the unmitigated, unfettered, unwarranted, unearned power that comes with that. And what that means is the group that has the privilege has the power to set the norms of the rules of what is normal. So when we think about what it means to really talk about and have discussions about what we are teaching about race, it still has to slide back to what do I believe? Am I acknowledging the fact that I do have privilege? That's a tough conversation to have. Some people just don't want to go there. It is the guilt that is um, attached to that, the shame that some of us feel. One, because we maybe didn't recognize it. Two, we recognize it, didn't know what to do with it. Maybe three, we recognize it, didn't know what to do with it, but kind of didn't want to give it up because it means something to have privilege. So when we talk about, you know, teaching this stuff, the, the first conversation has to start with the privilege. The second one is the power. What are you doing with your power? Are you demonstrating or conveying in your interactions with your parents and your students and your colleagues that your power is so significant that you will only use it for yourself? Or is your power significant enough and expansive enough? And are you willing to start having some difficult conversations and interactions, number one, with yourself and then others about what it means to be in a privileged group? Because you are the one that's setting the norm for what is true, what is real, and all of those different things. So when we think about educators teaching race, because we all do, and we teach it by what we say, we teach it by what we do, we teach it by what we don't say, and we teach it by what we don't do. And so it is going to be a benefit not only to the students that are in our classrooms, both black and white and other, as you said, but also our colleagues, because we know that race is being taught informally informally in our classrooms, not necessarily etched out in curriculum, but it's in the curriculum. Um, and we know that our students are learning the social consequences of race. So how can we, how can we um, reconstruct that um, in our interactions with our parents, our colleagues, and with our students? How can we really have the difficult gut level discomfortable, disturbing, disruptive conversation about race. Because I'll tell you, most of our black students, they're having that, those conversations in their circles with their peers. 
they're having those conversations in their circles with their family. And they are able to see and understand when they themselves are experiencing things. But if we learned anything about those dear school letters, we know that our white students have also seen that. And they were able to locate and say this. I did. I remember when I was in such and such as class and they said this and those types of things. But now we're seeing that those students now have uh, the space um, and the opportunity to really just say, this is what I've been seeing. So I think it's incumbent upon educators to really be open and honest about the fact that we are teaching it. So how can we teach it more responsibly? How can we just pull the bull by the horns and say, we're going to do this thing? Um, we're we're going to learn because we need to learn in order for us to teach it appropriately. And how are we going to use that information to ensure that the rest of the students, the parents that we interact with, are not being marginalized by our power, that we're sitting and we're sharing that power um, so that we're not teaching inferior status to anyone, language, you know, um, income, those types of things. So it is, I think it's critically important because we have to remember our students are going to be future educators, future mm-hmm. practitioners, future, you know, they're going to be in future workforce and we don't need this to be perpetuated. It's so funny. And Kim, I'll let you go next. I, I just wanted to highlight that a lot of what you said, you you were hitting on a lot of my other questions before I even had to get there, because, you know, again, you had hit on this notion of like systemic racism and how these are like the policies and the practices that are linked across institutions that produce favorable outcomes for some and disadvantages for others. And and you 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 made this point in the presentation. You said if someone is favored, that means someone is not. And so my question was going to be around, well, what you know, um, so what now what almost like what are the implications for educators in terms of their role? Because this is this big responsibility about not perpetuating these things, not continuing the cycle. And I think you kind of highlighted that in some of the things that you talked about, like, how do we do this responsibly? How do we move on? Mm-hmm. Kim. Right. Well, Dr. Walker, while you were expounding on that idea, I was just thinking and I was just kind of stuck on what you said about the guilt and shame around privilege and power and how we think about you know, really, how do we wield that power, um, particularly when we're in front of our students? And so you had said in the presentation that our brains are hardwired to, to categorize, you know, and we want to put things and people, um, I would also say, into into buckets. Mm-hmm. And then we we like to assign those buckets certain privileges, and then and, and taking into consideration what we're taught, like you said, formally and, and informally. But during the presentation, you talked about like levels of awareness. And I think you used the term awake to woke to work. Mm-hmm. So and this, of course, as you said, is tied to the roles of, of people, cultures and systems. Could you expound on that topic a little more and you know, the importance of dealing first with people mm-hmm. in order to change, you know, culture and systems that we feel need to be changed in some way. Yeah, I love the, um, the, uh, it's the, it's the equity in the center um, kind of framework. Um, awake to woke to work is what I was using. <clears throat> but I'll give you kind of a, I'm a storyteller, so I have to tell the story. So I, um, I have been in church my whole life and, and 
I love going to church and uh, I love my pastor. And so I have been a part of my church probably since I was 12. And I can sit and listen to all these messages and just eat it up. But what I have found is that as a person sitting in there in this big congregation with a bunch of other people, I would hear a message and I would be like, "Ooh, that's good. And then I would start identifying the person that that would be good to hear. Like, oh, yeah, you need to hear that. You need to hear that. You need to hear that. But I never really identified myself as somebody that needed to hear. Like I was listening for everybody else so that I could be like, OK, there's this message. You need to clean this up and clean that up and clean that up. But I never really that spotlight. I never really put that spotlight on me. So before we can really deal with other people and the answer to your question, we got to deal with our mucky, dirty, ugly stuff. And we got to be honest about what's in here. Um, so when I think about kind of awake to woke to work, I think about perspective taking first as being a really, really good thing. So after we're after we're awakened. So we talked about, you know, George Floyd for many people being like that moment that was just undeniably racist. Mm -hmm. But there were there were many of us who were already awake to that fact. Um, there is this 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 legal kind of concept about some crimes being just so shocking that it shocks your conscience. And I think George Floyd was for some people. It was just, oh, my goodness. And so, OK, so now we're all awake. Right. But the tendency is always to go to other people, like I said, sitting in church, listening to sermons or to go to systems. But people create the climates. They create the cultures that are eventually institutionalized and memorialized in our policies that we eventually just practice, you know, just in general. So it's not a good idea to skip forward. It's a good idea to sit with self. And sometimes it's just difficult. I find myself as a black woman constantly having to um, just talk to myself and say, well, what is this about? As I, I think I shared with you all um, in the presentation I teach a lot of graduate students and we have conversations just about checking your privilege. The race conversation really is a privilege conversation. And I think I may have shared, you know, when I see, you know, some of the things that go on, I have an idea of a picture of who a person might be that may be a perpetrator or things like that. That is heavily active, implicit bias going on. And sometimes I have to sit back with myself and say, okay, now wait a minute. You know, so I think when we think about when we think about kind of waking up, really, we need to wake up and look at ourselves in the mirror first. We need to figure out where our gaps are. Number one, where are our knowledge gaps? What are the things that we have believed to be true and accurate that are just not true? We need to go on a fact finding mission to ensure that what what we've been told and what we've learned implicitly and explicitly is accurate. And then we start need to start kind of uh, inspecting ourselves and our motives and making sure that they align up just with treating people just kindly and fairly. And then we can start having the conversations about having conversations with others. We can't take people to a place that we've not been to. That's like me saying, I'm going to train you to be a marathon runner and I have never run a marathon in my life. <laughs> I can't do that. I got to figure out all the stuff that I need to be able to learn myself so that I can teach you. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's very important for us to kind of have those interactions and those conversations with others, but the conversation needs to start with us. You know, I'm so glad that you, that you went there, um, particularly with 
um, the, with George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd last summer. And the fact that, you know, I agree, I had to sit with that for, for a while before I could even form um, my real thoughts about that and my real feelings about that. I had to allow myself to feel, you know, those feelings. And I want to take you back to a point in the presentation where you talked about our mental stories. And you just a few minutes ago with Bogochi mentioned um, black females interactions with uh, with white advisors. You also talked about unwarranted discipline in terms of opportunities and exposures to academic capital. So when we're thinking about our mental stories, you had talked about. Um, I think the wears and tears or maybe the wears oh. tears, <laughs> if you think about it that way, um, weathering. And then you talked about racial battle fatigue and that our students are really experiencing anxiety, anger, depression, uh, fatigue. You also said that you've heard students say, walking into my classroom makes me physically sick. Mm-hmm. So could you talk about just when we've done, like you said, a fact finding mission mm-hmm. and correcting some of the things that we think we might know, how do we take all that as educators to meet our students where they are, particularly now when they're coming back into the classroom and they're still experiencing that anxiety, depression, fatigue, maybe even related to, um, to the pandemic? Mm-hmm. What advice might you give educators as we take those things into consideration? Yeah, so I like the idea about meeting our students where they are, but I'm gonna drill. I'm gonna drill this down even more. First, Please. we gotta we gotta meet ourselves where we are because we can't meet our students where they are because we can meet them and, and not have any awareness. Um, and so we, you know, we need to start there first. So then we have our students. We have you know all the different impacts of COVID on all of our students, but then we have them compounded on some of our, our most minoritized students. We, that doesn't, you know, COVID does not erase racism and it does not eradicate the impacts of it during, before and after COVID for our students' experiences and their parents. Mm-hmm. And so when I, when I think about that whole idea of, of weathering, wears and tears, the racial battle fatigue that impacts our students physically, psychologically, and social emotionally, when we think about social emotional learning, which I was so excited that we shifted, that Ohio shifted to a focus on that as being critically uh, important to our students' success, um, we have to think about all the things, as I said before in the presentation, all the things inside and outside of the educational experience that impacts our students. Because we know that when those things are addressed, that they are going to be the most ready learners. And in and, and my research with, um, with Black women students, um, I found that, that a lot of those things are, uh, are barriers to them being successful um, in their learning. And this is where we get to, and I think we're going to talk about this later on, this is where we get to conversations around persistence and resilience. Um, but our students aren't able to do that because they're fighting these battles. They're fighting these battles in our classrooms because we're not aware of our own bias. And so they're fighting through the fact that, and I'll tell you a, a small thing that, so you ask, you know, what can we do? This is a small thing that I don't think educators think about. You know, 
So I was a substitute teacher for quite some time. You always get the sub letter, right? <laughs> okay, so this student, this student, this student. I always had a student that was identified as my go-to student as a sub, maybe two. And then sometimes I would have students identified as the ones I needed to watch. Um, a small thing like that, just being mindful of who we're even identifying as being seriously in elementary school, the person that gets to go take the stuff to the office, the person that gets to be the go-to person when the sub is there, the person that gets to be identified that you're going to put forth for, uh, you know, student council, the person that's going to be identified for that extra whatever thing that the principal has said, I need to get one good student, you know, that type of thing. When we are race sensitive, when we remove kind of, um, I see it as almost like the whole idea of the size in our eyes, the thing that's, that's clogging our vision. When we start addressing our own insensitivities as people and then as educators, is when we're going to be able to really look across our classroom and see our students as students, race will still be there. So we can't say we're not gonna see anybody's color. That would not be okay. But what we will do is we will see every asset that each one of our students bring to the table. And they all bring something. Um, and so we can then use that lens to ensure that we are one being fair in our selection for whatever, but that we're also looking at them and looking at their experiences, which is why we need to know our students, but looking at them, looking at, at their experiences and trying to figure out ways that we can um, embed and undergird some of the things that they need social emotionally. We're doing that right now anyway, as educators, we're looking at all of our students and saying they all need this, some of them need this, a few of them need that. We're, um, we're in, you know, we're embedding kind of how to make relationships in the classroom and those types of things in our practice. We are teaching nice, nice people skills to our, our students. While we are doing that, we need to be critically mindful of some of our students that are coming um, to our educational environments who have been marginalized in their previous classrooms, out in our hallways, in our lunchroom and uh, outside of our educational spaces and find ways that we could address that with them, um, that we could help also build, build their persistence. Um, and I actually have, I have a model of persistence, a, a theory that I created. Um, and part of it is the things that educators can do to build persistence and particularly in black, black female students, but what they can do to ensure that they are engaging in persistence building type of activities. And one of, one of it is recognizing our children's brilliance. Everybody has an asset somewhere. We all have a strength. It may not be the same thing, but it is a thing. Being able to identify spot and really grow that is one way that we can, we can um, address kind of those wears and tears and all those different things. Because sometimes we don't believe in ourselves, but we got an educator that believes so well in us. Eventually, I'm going to believe your story. Because we know that our students are believing the stories about their inferiority. That's what they're fighting against. So if we can reframe that story about what they bring to the table, how, um, how um, they add to our educational spaces, what they add to our educational spaces. Um, I, think, I think that goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that idea of asset thinking versus deficit thinking in terms of how we interact with each other and how we interact with our students and that they all bring bring a talent uh, to the table instead of immediately looking at them, you know, like you said earlier about, you know, 
black and brown boys constantly fight to show people they are not mm-hmm. what society says they are. And then eventually they may get to the point where they just say to themselves, well, let them be right then. They do. <laughs> and yeah. And then that brings a whole um, other, you know, um, issue that that educators find themselves in and having to to rebuild and repair some of those relationships. Thank you for that. I had like a random aha moment. I liked how you threw in that notion of like the sermon thing at the church and how you always think of somebody else. I I definitely, um, (laughs) I I was like, oh yeah, I've done that. (laughs) Like if only my brother would hear this message because he needs this. But but I laughed because like, even when you started talking, I really did have like a, huh, you know, that whole notion of us beginning the work with ourselves and starting with ourselves. And I say that in this example, when you talked about the sub example, because as a teacher, even looking back at that scope, I, I wonder if maybe I wanted to make sure the adult was okay. So I'm putting all these like structures and fail, fail safes in place. Like watch out for these, this one, because if you do this as a trigger, um, but definitely call on da 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 if you need anything done. She knows where my stuff is. She can go to the office. And, and like you said, those minute things, almost like a gatekeeping measure, because this person that really doesn't know anything about any of these children they're coming to have now these perce- perceived like connotations about them based on what I put in there about the students who should be sitting where, who should be talking to who, which behaviors you should look out for and prevent so that your day doesn't become a turn up. And so um, that was definitely a moment for me when you said that I was like, you know, you, I have to see myself and look in the mirror as well and see what things I'm like, Ooh, you could have done better at that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But so that you know, was, I, like easily rotate that list. You know, so you will be out anyway, right? You, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, rotate your list of who is my go-to person. Right. And that would be, I mean, just something as minute as that as a simple thing, but it, it goes back to this notion on gatekeeping, right? And so you mentioned a lot of things that students are going through. You had this visual that you had during your presentation where you showed all the things that they were going through, microaggressions, normalizing racism, looking at racism as a thing of a historical phenomenon. Like that's not happening now. This notion of like um, color blindness, you know, I don't, I don't see color. The bootstrap theory, if only you would work harder. Um, you know, bullying, the white savior complex, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of wanted to go back to this notion of gatekeeping, right? Um, especially when it comes to students um, and who gets to be, you know, pushed ahead to the AP classes or get whatever treatments that would probably lead to more favorable outcomes. T- to me, again, is this notion of this cycle, like all these different things that are helping to perpetuate the system that we're in. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the whole gatekeeping notion is really tied to that that privilege and the power. And so we think about um, privilege. As I said, we have all these different buckets, but what it essentially does, as I said earlier, is it, it, it confers unwarranted, unearned, unmerited advantages, rights, opportunities, exposure, you know, those types of things. And when we look at gatekeeping, we tend to let in the people who are like us. It's just a fact. I mean, I, we're, I'm comfortable with you. Like I, I look at it as an example of um, when you think about 
I always tell my colleagues at, at our at our our job. I said, this is what we do. Think about you put up a, a job posting. Right. And this happens with graduates. So I work with graduates. So this happens with graduate students all the time. You put up a job posting. And what happens? Well, you share it with somebody and somebody says, oh, I, I got a friend that can do that. First of all, the job posting never really officially goes out because somebody's already been identified for it. Same things happen with graduate students. You'll get a faculty member who has a particular student that they want to work with. Oftentimes, um, faculty pick students that look like them. And so the gatekeeping comes in because, it, number one, it's easier for me just to say, yeah, I got this opportunity. I have this money or things like that. But a lot of times that gatekeeping comes into play, especially if it's a more intimate setting. So we think about committees, parent committees, parent and student committees. We always want to find someone that, and we'll use this terminology, I think they'll be a good fit. What is that? What is a good fit? What does that look like? You know, sometimes our, our gatekeeping is ensuring that we're comfortable, number one, um, and so it operates in two ways. It operates in maintaining our comfort because let's just be honest. If we are used to having everyone around us that look and think and act like us, it's going to be a major shift in disruption if we bring somebody else in. And to be, to be quite frank, when you have a, a group of people who are accustomed to each other, um, and you have an option to bring in someone that looks like that group of people or someone that doesn't, when you bring in somebody that doesn't, then that means that that's, that's going to require you to do a bit, little bit more work. You're going to probably be a little cautious with your speech and things like that. And we don't want to have to do that. And so we go with it. It's a, it's a good fit type thing, uh, as opposed to something else. And then there's this whole other, uh, concept, um, as we think about privilege and power in particular, as it relates to uh, race and education, um, there's this concept called um, whiteness is property. It is an, an old concept, but what it, what it essentially explores is how whiteness, number one, sets the term for what is normal. We talked about that earlier. But then those who have the privilege of being white can confer that to others who are not white, but they can also confer it to others who are white. So if you think about whiteness, there are levels, right? So you got rich white, you got middle-class white, you got poor white, those types of things. Whiteness as property came in a long time ago when it was kind of like your, the, so there were white people that worked for other white people. But then it, it started looking like, okay, we can't have white people doing this work because it basically lowers our brand. So then you start having poor white people employing black people to do the work. So when we think about this whole idea of gatekeeping, it allows the maintenance of whiteness as property to continue because we're ensuring that our people are getting those opportunities and those uh, exposures to maintain this whole thing. So when we are excluding people, we are excluding them to the thing that has been made a property. And knowledge is a property. The ability to have exposure to learnings, to additional learnings, to new things, that builds capital, by the way, is codified and made into this thing that can be conferred to certain people. 
I know that was probably a long drawn out version, probably more complicated than what you expected. But essentially, that gatekeeping allows us to let the people in that we want to confer whiteness to and keep the folks out. So, for example, we oftentimes will see a black student that is like, that is our go to. I mean, this boy is, is amazing. He's, you know, he's just so articulate, those types of things. Many times that student is conferred the properties of whiteness because he is going to be elevated and seen as an exception to all the other black people. And so he's then bought in and he's just, you know, celebrated and things like that. And so that gatekeeping also works for people who have certain things that are of value to whiteness and intelligence is valuable to maintaining whiteness. So then you'll get some people who are non-white that get swept inside because they're, they're valuable to have. He's like one of us, you know, that type of thing. So hopefully that answered your question. Oh, absolutely. And Dr. Walker, I will take um, um, the opposite view this was not too much. This was just right. I thank you so much for um, for being clear. I mean, that information is so important. And even though I think we tend to think, you know, this is a lot, a, a lot of information that it's very heavy. And yes, and um, I think you've been so clear um, in, in what you've been um, sharing with us and sharing with the, the folks who were able to attend your last session. And I hope that I can speak for Ugochi and, and others who are signed up for the next two sessions that we are so looking forward um, to more information from you and more sharing from you. Could you tell us a little bit uh, about the next session in April? And you're doing also another uh, a, your third session with us in May. The April session is using racial awareness as a tool to implement culturally responsive educational practices. Could you give us a brief overview of that session and maybe how that might extend into um, the third and last session in May? Yep, I can. So the last time we used that, the last session is just kind of traveling through the connection between race and education historically, but also as, as we've talked today, it's not just a historical happening, it's a current happening. So just kind of identifying some of the things, um, as you all have said, that we talked about that are currently occurring with our students. And so in that sense, I feel like we took off those colorblind glasses, those opaque glasses, and we've now put on the glasses of, of reality. Of this is what's really going on. So our next session is really geared, toward, geared towards using that new lens with that, that is very, very clear about what is actually happening in our educational spaces and then using that new awareness to start identifying very easy ways that we can implement uh, racially sensitive uh, practices just at a basic level um, in our classrooms. And then that's going to kind of segue into that last session, which I'll be sharing um, kind of a, a working theory that I have um, about using a tiered intervention model to address um, the uh, spaces and places and practices in our um, educational spaces. Um, as I said before, if, if we think about all students, some students, a small group of students, we're gonna actually use that tiered system 
to really start having a, a conversation about how do we move past this conversation and look at some practices that we can change so that we can start changing policies that undergird those practices. Um, that session I'm really, really excited about uh, just because I get to unveil this, this model that I have um, because educators understand intervention. We understand tiered models. We understand identifying students that you know, have varying degrees of um, academic and social emotional needs. We also understand implementing inter interventions that are building wide. So building wide, you know, SEL practices. We also understand, you know, those interventions where we got to have those um, IAT meetings for just a, a group of students that we need to address. And then we get down to the more personalized, customized interventions. We're talking about looking at an evaluation for special education, but what we're actually doing is highlighting the um, explicit need of specific small groups of students. We're going to use that perspective to really start talking about how do we how do we do this? And we're I'm going to flip the I'm going to flip the triangle upside down in order to do that. So that's what we're doing. I'm really looking forward to to both sessions. But um, the third session in May sounds really interesting because we do talk a lot about intervention models. So I'm really looking forward to that. So we should just skip to that then. Just <laughs> no, 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 we no. got to do we got to do the work. We got to get to April, April and then get to May. Right. We have, to, we have to do the work. <laughs> Given that this podcast is heard by billions across the world, the country, the nation, <laughs> the universe, the galaxy, <laughs> if people wanted to find out more information about you and, and, or, and, and more importantly about the work that you do, like where should they go? They can go uh, to several places. They can start off by going to the Center on Education and Training for Employment's website. That is CETE.OSU at EDU. If you go there, you'll be able to kind of see what our whole center does. And then you'll be able to go and travel to my team, which is the Equity Engagement Evaluation Team. And we are the ones that are responsible for this uh, racial equity, diversity, and inclusion uh, movement. We're not calling an initiative because those end. They start and they have a stopping point. Movements, they start and they continue going. So um, folks can go travel um, over there and look at that, that page as well. Uh, and then they'll find, they'll find me buried somewhere under there um, <laughs> in there. And that is a really good way to, um, to find me. That's awesome. And as well. Oh yes, come on, tell your oh. handle girl. My <laughs> handle is Dr. Kenyana Walker. It's very simple. Yeah. <laughs> on Twitter. Um, and then I'm also on LinkedIn. So you can find me. This wraps up our roundtable discussion. Um, really just want to thank you again. Our very special guest, Dr. Kenyana Walker. Hopefully this is not the first and last. We look forward to additional opportunities, you know, even beyond these sessions we have. Um, if you want to find out more about Dr. Walker's upcoming event and our other professional development opportunities, please check out our website at sst11.org. Um, if you want to contact Kimberly Brown, you can reach her by email at kimberly.brown at escco.org. Um, and if you want to contact me, Ugochi Akoi, you can reach me at ugochi.akoi at escco.org. <laughs> Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for being here. <laughs>